Well, good morning. So great to see all of you this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. Would you stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. You may be seated. The Lord is risen. Heard Alistair Begg tell a story about a, a man named Jimmy in Scotland. Jimmy came to faith in Jesus Christ late in his life. He had lived a, a, a pretty rough life uh, up until that time um, and uh, was totally unfamiliar with the ways of church and, and Christians and all of the things that are unique to Christian culture. And someone came to him and said, Jimmy, now Easter is coming. And just so you know, one of the things that Christians do at Easter is someone might come up to you and say, Jimmy, the Lord is risen. And your response should be, he is risen indeed. And Jimmy thought about that for a while and he said, okay, I think I can, I think I can remember that. I think I can do that. And, and he practiced a little. And, and so when Easter, um, was finally arriving, for sure someone came to him and said, Jimmy, the Lord is risen young man came to him and said those words and 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 Jimmy just kind of froze trying to remember what it was uh, he was supposed to say and and he couldn't he just couldn't bring it and 
And finally he just said, I, laddie, there's nae doot about it. And that's what we say today, there's nae doot about it. So I want to welcome you on this Resurrection Sunday morning. If you're visiting with us, I want to extend a special welcome to you and thank you for coming. I also want to acknowledge those of you who may be here this morning somewhat unwillingly, perhaps under protest. You didn't want to come, but it was the only way to get someone off your back for at least another eight months until Christmas. And perhaps your only ticket to a lovely Easter brunch or dinner. And I want you to know that I see you, I feel you. And I thank you for being here anyway. And I, I just invite you to listen, because at the same time, I, I want you to know that I personally take the historical event, which Easter commemorates, to be a matter of trustworthy, verifiable, historical fact, whether or not anyone else believes it to be true. Namely, that Jesus of Nazareth, having been crucified on a Roman cross, outside Jerusalem, having died on that cross, having been declared dead by the Roman authorities and buried in a borrowed tomb, was physically raised from the dead by the power of God on the third day. With that in mind, I'd like to invite you to join me in examining that portion of the resurrection narrative that, that we just read. It was written by one of Jesus' closest friends, the Apostle John. Along the way, we we may glance uh, at the other uh, resurrection narratives from the other gospel writers, but my intent is to stay pretty close to this text, John 21 through 18. And, And would you please just consider with me for a few minutes, first of all, some indicators or evidences of the resurrection to which John points in this passage. Secondly, the the inevitability or the necessity of the resurrection in light of biblical prophecy. And third, some implications of the resurrection for all of us. And finally, the invitation that Christ extends to you even now to your own resurrection from the dead. So first then, several indicators of the resurrection. What evidence for the resurrection does John provide for us in chapter 20, verses 1 through 18? If if you happen to have picked up a Bible at the back, and would like to open it to that passage, you'll find it on page 852. But John just, in this passage, stacks evidence like cordwood um, of the resurrection. And he opens the chapter, as we read it, with this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And it's a bit of a curiosity, I think, that, that John chose in telling, uh, his telling of this story to focus only on Mary Magdalene, uh, her part in the story, because we, we know from the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that, that she was accompanied by actually three or more other women when she came to the tomb very early that morning on the first day of the week to complete the preparations of Jesus' body for final burial. Um, So it's almost as if John just kind of photoshops the others out of the story and follows Mary for some unknown reason. Well, well, who was Mary Magdalene? Uh, Magdalene was not her last name. That name by which we know her identifies her as uh, her hometown, rather, of of Magdala, a a village that's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. She was a, a disciple of Jesus, 
one of the group of women who traveled with Jesus along with the other disciples and supported his ministry. She had not, of course, um, always been his disciple. It's believed that Mary at one time had been a prostitute. Mark tells us that Jesus had delivered Mary from demonic possession and oppression, casting as many as seven demons out of her. Arriving at the tomb that Sunday morning, she saw what she had neither expected nor even hoped to see, that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And please notice that Mary's first assumption was not that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Neither was it that someone had stolen the body. Her immediate assumption was simply that someone had removed it from the tomb and placed it elsewhere. And perhaps that was all her anguished mind would allow her in that moment. This is exactly what she reported then when she ran and found Peter and John, who identifies himself in this narrative as the other disciple. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And hearing this, Peter and John then just break into an open sprint uh, from wherever it was they were uh, to the tomb. And frankly, I, I would have loved to have seen the grin on John's face as he put pen to paper on this because he lets his readers know in three different ways that he beat Peter to the tomb. <laughs> in verse four, he says that he outran, he says he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then in verse six, he takes the opportunity to insert that Peter was behind him. <laughs> And in verse 8, he again identifies himself as the disciple who reached the tomb first. So for all the rest of human history, uh, anyone who might read uh, his gospel would know that he, John, at least on that day, proved to be more fleet of foot than Peter. So we read there at uh, beginning of verse 3, So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So upon arriving at the tomb, what what was it that they actually found? Specifically this, that they found the stone removed from its place, the tomb empty, just as Mary Magdalene had told them. And here we see yet another difference between Peter and John, and this time in their individual temperaments. John arrives first, uh, stoops to look into the tomb, sees the linen cloths that had wrapped Jesus' body still lying there, but he doesn't go in. Peter then arrives, probably, you know, huffing, puffing, out of breath, doesn't hesitate. He just goes directly into the tomb, totally Peter's personality. So so John was the first to the tomb with Peter following, but Peter was the first into the tomb and then with John following. And again, what did they find? They found the linens that had been wrapped around Jesus' body, uh, grave clothes, if you want to describe them that way, still lying in place uh, as if he were still there, as if he were still there. Even more, the sedarian, the, the cloth that had been wound around Jesus' head, 
was still there, separate from the other linens. And my understanding is that this cloth was not used primarily to cover the face of the deceased, although it might have done that. Its primary purpose was to prevent the mouth from falling open. And and so it was this cloth, this kerchief, was wrapped several times around the head, tied at the top. And this really better explains what John says they found, because the English Standard Version, which we're reading from this morning, says that they found it folded. But the word John used here actually indicates that they found it still rolled up or wound up, just as it had been wound around Jesus' head and separate from the other linens. So based on the evidence, the sense given would have been that Jesus' body had simply evaporated out of the linen cloths and left them lying there. Like a cocoon that had suddenly been vacated and just collapsed on itself. Contrast that with the scene when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Remember that moment? And, and Jesus stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And, and Lazarus, you know, came shuffling up out of the tomb, still wrapped, and Jesus directed others uh, that they should, two others, that they should unwrap him. Someone said that the tomb was, the stone was rolled away from the tomb, not so that Jesus could get out, but rather so that we could see in. One of the repeated words in this passage of Scripture is the word saw. It's used four times, employing actually three different Greek words, and they're meaningful in this context. In verse 1, Mary arriving in the tomb saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. In verse 5, John looking into the tomb saw the linen cloths lying there. And in both of these instances, the word, the Greek word that, that John employs is the word blepe, and it simply means to, to just look and to physically see and, and in seeing to make preliminary judgments. For example, we look and, and we see that the sky is blue, or as more often here in the Pacific Northwest, that the sky is gray. And, and then in verse 6, Peter entered the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths, Sudarian, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. And this time John uses the word theore, which is the word, of course, from which we get our words theory and theorize. It means to visually examine something, not only to see physically, but to see with a measure of discernment, to, to contemplate something in order to come to a reasoned theory about what one is seeing. Then in verse 8, John says regarding himself that he also went in and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. And the word he uses here in this instance is is is, is yet another word, Iden, which means in a metaphorical sense, to see spiritually, to see with inward spiritual perception. And while John doesn't specify precisely what his seeing on this occasion led him to believe, it's clear that this was for him personally a profound faith-building moment. And I think what we see here is really the, the faith journey 
in miniature to see, to contemplate, to discern, and then to believe. Yet another evidence or indicator of the resurrection is that is the, is the testimony of the angels to Mary upon her return to the tomb. Verses 11 to 13, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped, stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So the sense here is that having gone to find the disciples and Peter John, Peter and John having run to the tomb, Mary followed behind them and now had arrived and she's standing outside of the tomb. She's, she's in anguish. She's weeping. And, and as she looks into the tomb, she sees not linens, but angels. And you know, in scripture, it's often true that when human beings encounter angels, they're stricken with terror. Now, which is why the first words out of an angel's mouth are usually, do not be afraid. Um, apparently not so on this occasion. They, they ask, woman, why are you weeping? And her answer to the angels really echoes her report to Peter and John, almost exactly the same words. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And John records no further reply from the angels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, do, uh, in each of their Gospels, uh, provide the reply. The, the, the response of the angels was, Do not be afraid. There it is. Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And so they console her, they, they affirm her, they announce the glorious truth of the resurrection to her, and they invite her to come and to see for herself. Same invitation that Jesus gave to those who might consider being his disciples. Come, come and see. Come and experience. But what John does include is, is someone else picking up where the angels left off and asking Mary the same question the angels had asked, woman, why are you weeping? And I I love this interaction. Uh, This would be worthy of uh, just uh, a period of meditation for each of us. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Notice that. She saw Jesus standing, John says, but she didn't know it was Jesus. She supposed him to be the gardener. And it's possible, isn't it, for all of us, each of us, to be in the very presence of the resurrected Christ and to entirely fail to recognize him. And my hope for you this morning is that because he is here by his spirit, you will not fail to recognize him. That you'll know that you've had an encounter with him. I think there had to have been a combination of compassion and maybe even humor on Jesus' face as he said to Mary, his dear friend, 
So describe for me this man you're looking for. And then he spoke her name. And it was when he spoke her name that she recognized who he was. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And I think in in saying that, he wasn't saying there's anything funky about his body at that point. I think he was just saying to her, you don't have to cling to me right now. I'm going to be around just a little while longer. You'll see me again. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. I heard a message by Tim Keller on on this topic this week, and, and, and I love what he said. He said that, you know, Jesus, as he approaches Mary, doesn't say, it's me. You know, he doesn't jump out from behind the stone. It's me. But rather, in a sense, he said to her, Mary, it's you. It's you. Uh, My death, my burial, my resurrection, it's all about you. It's for you. I did it with you in mind. I did it bearing your sins in my body on the cross. It's about you, Mary. And I think he would say that to each of you today. It's about you. Gentle, kind, loving. You know, one of the persistent claims of the critics of Christianity is that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was was just a fraud, that his followers had somehow conspired together to steal the body, to perpetrate this enormous lie. But, but the accounts of the resurrection and all that followed it just reek of eyewitness testimony. They they refute that claim powerfully. What's abundantly clear is is that none of the disciples, not one of them, actually expected a resurrection. In spite of all that Jesus had said. As one pastor put it a few years ago, nobody expected no body. So I could go on with the evidences here in this passage alone, but, but consider briefly, briefly with me just two more. You know, most people in their attempt to fabricate a false narrative uh, will present themselves in the most positive possible light. I mean, if you're writing about yourself, you want people to remember you well. Uh, they'll make themselves the heroes of the story. But not so these men, not so the apostles. They instead present themselves with all of their flaws, all of their faithlessness, all of their confusion. And finally, no one in first century Hebrew culture intending to perpetrate a lie would have made a woman, sorry, much less a woman with a Mary's checkered past, the star witness to the resurrection. Why not? Because the testimony of, of women was not generally trusted. They couldn't even testify in a court of law. The first century historian Josephus said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable, quote, because of the levity and boldness of their gender. The Roman philosopher Celsus, a a fierce critic of Christianity, asked this, how can anyone listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? 
And he mocked the idea of Mary as a trustworthy witness, saying that Mary Magdalene herself was half crazy from fear and grief, deluded by sorcery, possibly one other of the same band of charlatans who dreamt it all up or saw what they wanted to see or more likely simply wanted to astonish their friends in the tavern with a good tale. See, not not even Jesus' disciples themselves would believe Mary's report at first. Luke recorded that when the disciples received the report of the women, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Peter would later write, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The gospel accounts of the resurrection and its aftermath are are believable in part for the very reason that no one would have written them the way they did unless they were true and unless it really did happen just this way. Well, with that in mind, I'd like you to think with me now about the necessity, inevitability or the necessity of the resurrection. In verse 9, John tells us that some of their amazement and confusion proceeded from the fact that as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. As yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. As I was doing my initial reading in preparation for this message, that word must just virtually jumped off the page at me. He must rise from the dead. John says, and I'm quite sure I've I've read this passage hundreds of times without that word impacting me in quite the way it has this time around. It, It speaks to what is absolutely necessary indicates what is inevitable with regard to the general nature of things and and includes in it a sense of urgency. The scriptures, John says, uh, not just isolated texts here and there, but, but the whole of the Bible taken together reveal that the Christ must rise from the dead. But they hadn't understood and and yet Jesus had repeatedly and with increasing detail even given forewarning to his disciples that all of this would happen. For example, Matthew recorded in chapter 16, verse 21 of his gospel, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, there it is, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Well, what does it mean that he showed them, but that he taught them from the Scriptures? In Luke's Gospel, the angels at the tomb remind the women, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. On the day Jesus was raised from the dead, on that afternoon, he he dropped in on two disciples who were walking together on on the road to a town called Emmaus. And these two disciples uh, were dejected because they neither expected a, a resurrection nor believed the report of the women from the empty tomb. 
And like Mary, they, they didn't recognize Jesus at first. But that evening over a meal, he revealed himself to them and said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, notice that, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should or was to suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. How amazing must that day and that conversation have been? On another occasion, the Jewish religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign that would give credibility and authority to his actions, and and he answered, only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign but the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. See, see, Jesus said, when this comes true, when you see this come to pass, that will be the miracle. That will be the validating sign. It's the only one I'm giving you guys. That's the validating sign. That I've died was buried, and was raised again from the dead. See, here's, here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. That, that the Old Testament predicts and foreshadows him, and that the New Testament reveals and explains him. The Apostle Paul later wrote to the believers in the Greek city of Corinth, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see that? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, as the Scriptures said he would, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In those days, the Scriptures Paul was referencing were the Old Testament Scriptures. Nothing else had yet been written. written. So I wonder... What scriptures in particular Jesus may have tapped to demonstrate again to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus that the scriptures insisted that he be raised from the dead? One of them may have been David's prayer of trust in God in Psalm 16. And that psalm climaxes in verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. So just as an aside, what we're looking at here is in Hebrew literature, it was called a parallelism. And and so it begins with one line, and the second line either clarifies or expands or enlarges on that first line. So in this case, David's hope is that he would not be left in Sheol, which is the realm of the dead. His desire isn't merely to be saved from immediate physical danger, but rather he wants to overcome, as we all do, he wants to overcome death. He envisions resurrection. But here's the catch. You see, Holy One doesn't refer to David here. Holy One is a unique title that's always reserved only for Messiah. It, It never refers uniquely to David. In this verse, David is declaring that his own resurrection is guaranteed by God's raising of his Holy One, Messiah Jesus. And so it is with us. 
Another of the texts that Jesus may have taught his disciples from is Psalm 22. The opening line uh, of Psalm 22 pictures the Messiah crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you heard those words? From the cross. In order for the logic of Psalm 16.10 to work, the forsakenness of Psalm 22 has to refer to being abandoned in Sheol, the realm of the dead. In other words, Messiah must die. And then from verses 16 to 21 of Psalm 22, what we read is a shockingly accurate and detailed first-person portrayal of death by crucifixion. Over a thousand years before crucifixion as a form of execution had ever even been invented. And yet, in the latter part of Psalm 22, verses 22 to 31, the language moves to life after death. Because David's life didn't fulfill the details of the psalm, which speaks of death by execution. That's not the way David died. It has to refer then to Messiah, one one of whose titles is Son of David. So again, here is David declaring that the resurrection of his own promise, his one promised and prominent descendant, would provide the basis for his own confidence in life after death. A third old, likely Old Testament passage Jesus surely would have pointed to with his disciples is Isaiah 53. Verse 10 of that chapter describes the death of the Messiah as the express will of God. That it pleased God to crush his servant. That crushing led not just to injury, but to death and burial. And verse 9 makes that explicit. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. But then verses 10 to 11 go on to describe his resurrection from the dead. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So notice his soul would make an offering for guilt. That's why Jesus died. But how can he see his offspring and prolong his days having been put to death except that he is also resurrected from the dead? His death, his resurrection would provide the means for many to be made righteous and by his death he would bring about the means of salvation for as many as would believe in him. Verse 11, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. See, I could go on, but what I want you to know and be confident of this morning is first that there is verifiable, logical, trustworthy, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I only just scratched the surface today. And secondly, that the Bible, not just in isolated sections, but from beginning to end, insists on the necessity of both the death and the resurrection of Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Well, what about the implications of the resurrection? If the claim that runs throughout the entire Bible, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is true, then one of the first implications is that the idea that all religions are essentially the same and that Jesus is just one among an assortment of leaders from which one can choose is proven to be patently false. 
One observer wrote that the major difference between the, between the life and teachings of Jesus and those of any other great religious leader lies in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and the others did not, however persistent their influence may be. See, that's why the early Christians were so bold as to say there is salvation in no one else, that God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. His resurrection, his demonstration of power and authority over even death itself validates his claim to be the Son of God and the only one who can save. Paul wrote to the Romans that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. See, there's no passage in the Bible that that lays out the implications of the resurrection like the 15th chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And in this passage, Paul seems to be replying to someone's assertion that the dead are not raised, that there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead. And many people today, as you know, believe this to be true. That may describe you this morning. But here's a part of Paul's answer. He says, for if the dead are not raised, let's begin with that premise. If the dead are not raised, general principle then not even Christ has been raised. That would kind of end the whole conversation, wouldn't it? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, it's a euphemism for dying, those who have died in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. You see, the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead just turns all the other arguments on their heads. So let's take Paul's reply and state it in the positive because Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. And notice how unassumingly and how confidently Paul makes that statement. Because Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead, for you to put your faith in Christ is not a futile decision. But it's the most logical, the most sensible, the most effective one you could possibly make. Secondly, because Christ died in your place, as your substitute, bearing your sins in his own body on the cross, which is the claim of Scripture, and has in fact been raised from the dead, so that when you place your personal faith in him, your sins can and will be forgiven. Why? Because they've already been paid for. And that's the, that's the essence of what Jesus said when he bowed his head at the cross and said, it is finished. Paid in full. Third, because Christ has in fact been raised from the dead, breaking the power of death forever, through personal faith in him, you can and will receive the gift of eternal life. See, on a few occasions over the, over the years, I've had the opportunity to preside over a graveside service. And on some of those occasions, when the person who died was a believer in Jesus, I have quoted with confidence in the promises of God the committal prayer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. 
It says this, we commend to Almighty God, our brother or sister, we commit his or her body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. In sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me just extend an invitation to your own resurrection from the dead. See, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a matter of historical reality, whether you believe it or not. I invite you to believe it, to receive it. God has granted to you the right, the freedom to accept it, to reject it. The Bible says that when Christ rose from the dead, all who believe in him were raised with him. On another occasion, he himself said to his disciples, because I live, you also will live. So I want to invite you on this Resurrection Sunday to your own resurrection from the dead. Let me ask you this morning, has Christ risen in your life? Are you confident that, that your sins are forgiven, that you are right with God? Do you possess that sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life? We saw earlier that it's possible for us to be in the very presence of the resurrected Christ and to entirely fail to recognize him. So is Jesus making his presence known to you this morning? Mary recognized the resurrected Jesus when he spoke her name. Is he calling yours? If he is, and I I pray that he is, the whole purpose that we're here this morning, Here's a promise from the Bible, God's word for you. It's in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where he said, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. There's nothing in there about good works. Nothing in there about you cleaning up your act. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's accomplished for you and your faith in that, transferring your trust from your cleverness, your intellect, your your morality, your good works, your charitable contributions, all those things that we think somehow bring merit with God. Just, just letting that go, transferring your trust away from all of that over only to what Christ accomplished for you at the cross and then allowing him to do his work in your life. In the words of that old Billy Graham hymn, Just As I Am, without one plea, but that the Lamb of God was, um, see, I'm going to mess this up, but that your blood was shed for me and and that you bid me come to the O Lamb of God, I come. It's just that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the power of your resurrection. We thank you for the 
amazing gift of sins forgiven, relationship with you reconciled, the hope of eternal life opened to us, never to be closed. So I pray, Lord, that today that there are those who are among us who have not yet sealed that deal, have not yet transferred their trust to the cross and the grave and the resurrection from the dead. Lord, that, that, that today would be the day that they place their their faith in you and know that it is finished. May I pray it in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, our soon coming King. Amen.